Okay, welcome to episode 13, I think we are. Unlucky for some, uh, but lucky for you, listener, because we have um, Dr. Karen Nelson-Field, and I talked to her uh, principally about her most recent book, The Attention Economy, uh, which I highly recommend, and I do that a couple of times uh, in the in the main uh, audio, so I won't do it here. Um, so we go through various elements, uh, parts of, uh, of the book. Also, uh, she puts me straight on a couple of things, um, uh, most notably when I sort of conflate surveillance capitalism with hyper-targeting in advertising, uh, and these are not uh, the same thing. So, but anyway, it was a fascinating conversation, as I say, highly recommend the book, uh, and she also picked some tunes. So anyway, without further ado, Dr. Karen Nelson-Field. So, good morning, Doctor. How are you? Good morning. I'm well, thank you. How are <laughs> you? Not too bad. You're supposed to say to me now what seems to be the problem, and then and then I'll say well, in a, in a sort of increasingly yeah, no. fragmented and low quality media environment, how are we going to build brands? Yeah, that's uh, welcome to the world of yeah. media. Yeah. <laughs> so just before I hit record, we were just talking about uh, um, the sort of difficulties and challenges of working in the in the current environment with you know restrictions around travel and being in the same place and everything but but you were saying that you know there's there's pros and cons um so that you know what were the sort of advantages that that, that you found because obviously you spend a lot of time uh in, you know going around uh, around the world or at least uh traveling yeah. so i was um so every six weeks i travel internationally until March <laughs> and mm. I think it's another year before we can even do it again but you know I, I, I don't like to say there's an upside of a pandemic but if there was one for me personally it means that people are a little bit more um, accepting that we live on the other side of the world and in a different time zone so um, you know I'm, I'm finding that um, the face-to-face is is less obviously required and I'm getting more uh, meeting requests from internationals, which is fantastic. So I think, I think the general acceptance that flexibility needs to be normal yeah. is one of the upsides of this for me. Yeah. Um, we're going to, we're going to principally talk about um, your most recent book, the attention economy, which, uh, which I just read. I've read it through once. Uh, but I think upon that, I thought it's going to be something that I want to sort of keep, you know, it's almost like something you keep on your desk as a sort of manual, almost a constant reference, you know, so one read doesn't really uh, do it justice. So I think it's a fantastic asset, I think, for particularly for media planners and, and buyers even, but also for for, you know, clients or marketing people to keep their agencies in check as well i think but bef- but before we get into that i think most people listening to this will be at least somewhat familiar 
uh, with, with some of your work anyway, but just for those who are not, do you want to just give us a little short potted history of how you got to where you are today and a bit of a, a sort of outline of, uh, of what Amplified Intelligence does? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, well, firstly, thank you for the wrap. Um, we're actually quite proud of this book and I have to agree. So even me, the author, goes back to it occasionally and finds all these things that I'd forgotten that were in there and yeah. think that's really relevant to a conversation that's happening now. And, you know, I, I think there's lots of gold nuggets in there. Yeah. Um, so yeah. the history is that um, I'm from Brandside, so, and I'm, I'm, I largely worked in media through my youth. Um, and then I got to, you know, I was um, head of premium brands for Diageo and I did, um, you know, a stint in the tourism commission. So I kind of went to marketing and analytics side um, in my 30s. Um, but then I made a decision because media is in my blood. I made a decision to do a PhD um, looking at media fragmentation, which was years ago now. And I did it with Aaron Bass. Um, and I stayed there for 10 years and um, what I learned uh, from there was invaluable around, you know, the laws of brand growth, but always question how they might apply in the media space, but moreover, you know, in the new media space. So part of my uh, agenda there was to sort of look at whether the old rules apply in new media. Mm. Um, and then what happened mm. for me, so we, we you know, I, I did a fair amount of sort of questioning the reality of engagement in the early socials and I, I questioned the validity of viral and all that sort of stuff but then what started to become really important to me was understanding cross-platform effectiveness and it was really apparent that a lot of the work that was being done was measured pretty poorly not very natural not a lot of controls and then the concept of attention, human attention in particular, became quite apparent. So I made a decision, a conscious decision, about four and a half years ago to leave the university system and start to consider how technology might play a role in um, capturing human attention because we, I, I see that you know, recall as a measure of attention is really not it doesn't cut it at all for so many reasons. Yeah. So I made a call to leave the university to hire a bunch of technicians um, and some researchers and build out um, originally what it was going to be was purely a research business, but we're actually pivoting now to SaaS product ourselves. So it's been a huge journey. Yeah. So yeah, that's my history, but we, uh, we still uh, like to uncover some, some truths that people don't uh, like to hear from me, yeah. but my, my job in the industry is to correct the market, not to be controversial for controversial sake. So yeah, that's kind of what we do. Yeah. And so, but you, you still have to balance because you're still uh, involved in academia to an extent. Yeah, not as much. I mean, no. I'm, I was a tenured professor up until about a year ago, um, but even then it was at arm's length. So okay. I'm an adjunct now. My, my role there with the University of Adelaide was more around, so I still have PhD students that I um, um, supervise, yeah. um, but yeah. very little of it now. So okay. I kind of moved away from academia because to be honest, it's it's a relatively slow moving beast. Yeah. So in the world of technology and media, you know, being sort of 
given boundaries from a university is pretty hard to do. So, you know, we work too fast for that. So, so it's yeah. really at arm's length, to be honest. Yeah. Do you think that, I mean, the level of kind of, um, use the word attention, but obviously, you know, when you have to, um, you know, because I've sort of tried to do this and, and, and failed, which is try and write uh, something that was of a level that it could be submitted to a journal. <laughs> and it was, uh, it was very, very hard. But do you think that, I mean, you know, does that, how much of the sort of real attention to detail uh, from academic writing is that does that has that been useful or uh, yeah. in, in terms of commercial work or yeah. or do you have to move so much quicker so what i've learned from my days in the university is that rigor is key so so sort of unfortunately but fortunately i'm kind of connected between two worlds so everything we do is particularly rigorous yeah. Uh, so we look for patterns that generalize across different boundary conditions. That's mm -hmm. important. So I, so we apply, so everything that sits behind our technology and the data we produce and the research we produce is really, really deep. So if we were to make a decision to publish, um, it would hold in peer review forms, but yeah. why we don't publish any more in peer review journals is because it can take two years yeah. to get through the system. Yeah. And in our world, that's just makes it a dinosaur. So yeah. um, occasionally I'll kind of dive in and do, you know, some trade publications that are peer reviewed, but I try not to kind of yeah. do the deep, deep journals anymore because really the applicability is more interesting to me. Um, yeah. But with that said, I still apply the rigor that would need to go into a journal or a peer reviewed journal yeah. piece. So that's a really important point. Another thing I was going to ask, because the other thing that you're the chair of, I think, is uh, is the Attention Council. Yep. So how co -chair. does co-chair? Um, so the Attention Council was born from about five like-minded people who see an issue in the market um, and and want to have or play a role in correcting it. And the the issue is clearly that not all opportunities. Are created equal and there's no transparency around this truth and the five of us originally we all believe that attention metrics yeah. properly collected attention metrics actually do play a role and certainly supplement existing measurement systems so it kind of started in London last August where we all said you know what we're kind of all in the space where we can potentially drive some change and we all have the data and all have the the background to be able to kind of apply some knowledge so we made a decision to build out this council but we didn't expect it to get the level of um publicity and membership that we have so yeah. fast forward to today um and you know we have you know so many high profile brands um so many high profile agencies global agencies and publishers coming on board to be a part of the change. So we're quite fussy about who we include in the council because we want to make sure that it's for the good, not the evil. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, um, but yeah, the whole idea of it is to, I guess, empower advertisers to understand, you know, what are they really getting in their 
in, you know, in their in their reach and frequency buys, and you know, what does ethics and, and attention mean, and and sort of be part of potentially lobbying, you know, um, industry bodies or and uh, measurement bodies to to accept human measurement mm. as 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 a gold standard. So that's what we do. I guess you know, I mean, and this is this is a sort of symptom of the of the 2020s really which is in all aspects of of life is the amount of misinformation uh, about any subject that you can think of it's a, you know it's one of the sort of drawbacks you know the internet's been a great thing uh, in some respects but it's also just been a sort of become open season for anyone to propagate any false information uh, about anything you know so i guess um that you know that's probably an impetus behind this as well is to be a sort of uh, independent source of kind of you know uh, truth you know to some to some degree would you agree with yeah. that yeah yeah i do look you know with due respect it's hard being a whistleblower um mm. and sometimes you know you know there's some big forces in the world that wish that i weren't around in terms of the work that we do yeah. um but then it is changing i do see that moreover people are interested in sort of disentangling these truths as you say yeah. but again i think it's really important for listeners to understand that we don't go looking for controversy because we i'm not i I just want to call out if we've got data that is contrary to some of the claims, I'm just interested in kind of sort of pushing back on those and saying, Hey, here's some data and it's generalizable, do your own research, do your own homework. But, you know, it's become, it, it, it yeah, I don't, I don't love being the one because, you know, with, with controversy comes criticism. Yeah. Um, and, and that's always difficult, which is even more so why we're super fussy about being fair to all platforms, because it's e when you are criticised because someone doesn't like what it means for them commercially, it's, it's easy to justify, you know, how fair we have been and yeah. how unbiased we've been in the collection. So good question. Mm. Okay. Right. Let's, um, so that's a bit of background, um, but I've got copious notes here um, that I've taken from reading the book. So let's see how many of these we can we can sort of get through. But um, just maybe what was the, uh, uh, you know, so the book is kind of like it's, it's midway between a sort of it's got a slightly textbook feel uh, in terms of each sort of chapter and parts of the chapter are kind of separate bits of research, but it's not but it's written in a sort of uh you know for a general audience uh as well but you know when i when i sort of got it i thought actually i wish i wish you'd written it about three years ago when i was uh when i was working in media agencies because i sort of stumbled into there coming from creative agency background i didn't really know much about media theory at all and when i went looking there was um i guess the stuff that was a big influence was um I can't remember his first name, but Efron, who wrote about recency oh, well, effects and stuff. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I thought oh, that that's pretty good. But then, you know, there's tons and tons of writing about creativity and strategy and all that kind of stuff. But the, but there just didn't seem to be a lot uh, on on media that was kind of up to date. And I think so. You've really filled the filled the gap in there. So any, you know, I'll sort of reiterate for any media planners, buyers, or strategy people, anyone in the media agency, I think it's essential reading oh thank you look to be honest um i think people underestimate how 
much influence the media buy has on the creative. I often say, because, you know, creative is fun and it's happy and it's emotional and media is a bit boring by comparison. But, you know, I'll often say that you can have a million dollar piece of creative, but if no one sees it on the platform, then it's a waste of that million dollars. Well, that's it. Whereas, you know, so, so the media space is really important to get it right. And people often, because it's a bit drier, um, it, people often fail to really understand the nuances of the platforms and how some modal, you know, variables like, you know, viewability or and time on screen and things like that play such a role in getting that million dollar piece of creative to yeah. work. So, yeah, thank you. Yeah. I mean, we'll, we'll, we'll get on to talking about screens and how not all screens are equal and all that kind of stuff in a, in a bit. But, I, you know, I always think, so my because my area of work is is looking at applying evolutionary theory to all kinds of business problems right and then um but in, in terms of uh, attention and stuff you might you know i often think you know you look at for instance cinema advertising and you say you know by all criteria that should be the most effective you know because you've got 100 percent viewability 100 percent attention it's a massive uh, screen you're not looking at anything but the problem is you know, it's almost like an adaptive problem because all these things that would be really great, uh, there's just not so many people looking at them, you know? <laughs> and then yeah, but, but yeah. we've got the, the most amount of eyeballs on lower quality uh, media. But we'll get onto that in a minute. I just, I, I want to go through the things sort of chronologically, the sort of things oh. that, that, that caught my eye. So in the, at the beginning of the book, you, you spend a bit of time sort of uh, describing the sort of journey uh, to, you know, in terms of where we are now in, in a media environment and the sort of fragmentation, I guess, or the um, the dominance of, of tech platforms. And, and you use the word blitzscaling, uh, which I liked. And that, that's the sort of thing that describes how, uh, well, you can, you can tell us what, uh, what that, what that means, but it's a great word. Oh, look, it's the one of the best books. Um, Reid Hoffman wrote a book, I think it was a couple of years ago now, and called it Blitzscaling. And basically it's a concept um, that's straight out of Silicon Valley around explosive growth. So not just normal growth, but explosive growth. Um, thinking unconventionally, pivoting, which, you know, a lot of us are doing in 2020, including us. Yeah. Um, but explosive growth is not for the lighthearted. And, you know, he talks about how, you know, businesses, and you know, you all know this from the press yourself, that go within two years, they're billion dollar businesses and have hundreds of millions of sort of users um, and how that affects the world um, and, and how businesses need to kind of deal with all the different things. But I think the most interesting part of our journey in the last 15 years was the fact that, you know, the Googles and Facebooks, their original, their original reason for being, or their original why, was more about you know bringing the world together yeah. and then all of a sudden they've become media sort of platforms without wanting to start out that way so yeah. so i find that really interesting that you know none of them really were interested in commercialization and they were kind of just it was about bringing you know bringing the information of the world together or you know, connecting people globally and all that sort of stuff. And yeah. and then all of a sudden we have this marketplace filled with these gargantuan opportunities, these advertising opportunities across all different 
um, formats. Um, so I think, you know, this explosive growth meant that, you know, organizations that are not traditional media platforms have become that they've needed to sort of sell this advertising concept and and what they do is they kind of are really just putting out case study evidence and because they're so massive they're they're really kind of putting stuff out there that isn't necessarily you know particularly robust and you know in, in fairness a lot of that's changed now but you know a lot of the I mean you can talk to Les Burnett but a lot of the kind of short-termism sort of work came from the need to collect likes, for example. Yeah. And that was just uh, fraught with issue from the beginning. So yeah, the Blitzscaling book, you should read it. I love that sort of stuff. But you know, any business that, that makes a decision to grow at that scale yeah. <laughs> would like hold on to hat. <laughs> <laughs> but do you, so I think you sort of allude to the fact that, you know, it's been a sort of perfect storm in a way where, where you know, probably over the, over the last sort of 10, maybe a bit more, 12 years, the, this kind of you know what and, and this is a sort of in the industry everyone talks about short term versus long term and you know but i think my sort of view was because of or not because of but one of the factors of this of kind of online advertising seemed to it stopped being about advertising and everything became direct marketing uh, and the and the sort of engagement type metrics they sort of fed into that and it was just a natural response from marketers to kind of get distracted by yeah yeah I mean you know these these platforms needed something to have a unique selling proposition so mm. the concept of viral marketing was born from YouTube I guess and yeah. I mean you've probably seen my first book which sort of yeah really puts a bit of a bucket of water on that concept yeah. um but you know they all they all want to be able to sell advertising onto their platform so they all have their own things that they use to kind of sell the concept of engagement to the advertising that yeah. is on the platform inadvertently you know adding you know um feeds and and things to distract them what they sort of didn't really expect was that actually a lot of the platforms are quite distracting away from the yeah. advertising. So, so that's kind of where we're at at the moment, sort yeah. of going, okay, just looking at these different measures and saying, are these really measures that are meaningful? That's kind yeah. of what we do. Now, when in your, uh, the, the first book that you, it was your first book, wasn't it? The viral marketing. Yeah. One. yeah. So um, one of the, uh, there was a couple of things in that, that, you know, cause I know you said before, you you know, deliberately, want to be controversial but these were quite frightening uh, things you know to to a lot of people when you sort of busted the the myth of uh we used to call it the jolly green giant myth you know which was uh you know like one there's going to be one super spreader individual who you know who can send things into sort of viral orbit and that was a popular belief uh but then you quantified that the, the exact reverse was true in in most cases and uh, and you call that the reverse j curve and you sort of revisit that uh, a little bit in this book mm -hmm. as well but uh, i remember you know when uh, you know when that sort of first came out trying to explain that to clients they were horrified that 
that this must be the case because the yeah, internet was, was supposed to be this free free reach but it's, but yeah, it turns out yeah, exactly look in fairness i feel there has been a fairly large everything works fast in our industry so even in five years since that book was released or six years i think um there has been an acceptance that you have to pay for seating up front for the reach to continue you know so the tail is longer but you know that's exactly right so it's it's a weird time to be talking about super spreaders but it's a classic you know epidemiology versus marketing and the reality is that the viral concept is flawed because the natural shape of content content distribution is opposite to how covid spreads so one super spreader COVID spreads it to a thousand people or 10 people even it's the opposite of that in content yeah. fusion um, and we sort of uncovered that and you know we're not the only ones there's some I've forgotten the name of the original work I think it's uh, somebody from Microsoft that actually did it originally but um, the the reality is that the shape is the opposite and um, yeah so that was controversial at the time but it's actually common sense so a lot of what we talk about I think is is actually almost really common sense kind of research and yeah. but people just have to get their head around because they're taught the opposite by mm. those who are most likely to gain the commercial dollars from it so yeah. that's kind of what we try and do now yeah. but the, you know there's also every now and again you know because there's always an exception and every now and again <laughs> some, something happens and then people in you know it's the uh, you know they infer the general from the particular instead of the other way around and, that, and i was just thinking of that the um ocean spray uh tiktok guy from the last couple of weeks i'm sure you've seen that the skateboarding yeah. guy uh, with the fleetwood mac you know I, do, I, do, I had a thought about this tell me what you think about this uh, which is um it's kind of you know traditionally brands would co-opt parts of culture uh you know uh, to sort of you know get some credibility or borrowed interest or whatever but it's almost like you know some of these tiktok people in in the sort of um you know in in trying to establish their own celebrity they are co-opting brands uh to you know to get to draw attention to themselves you know i thought that was an interesting i think uh, that's an, a great um um explanation and i think um you're right but you know at the end of the day there's not a lot we haven't seen or heard before so now we're in sampling territory where we've got to kind of borrow a bit from other people and make it somewhat unique mm. but back to your point about the TikTok of the last couple of weeks even still that got on the news right so so when people say there are exceptions there's always exceptions in research i get that and the whole point of meaningfulness is about patterns hold more than they don't but the reality is um that piece went to the mainstream press and yeah. got shared on news so in fact if we did do a diffusion curve even for that piece so my classic example god it's been a while but it was um about the uh the bucket the ice bucket um yeah. Yeah. so i used to get people say yeah but that's an exception but if you actually dive down into that um gosh, motor, it's a neuro motor neuron disease um yeah. concept the reason why it went in commas viral is because um uh, oprah winfrey and justin timberlake yeah. and 
there was a famous golfer god help me i'm sorry yeah. i can't forget his name but these people shared it right yeah. and so it's still not viral because they have many millions and millions and millions and millions of yeah. followers yeah. so when when a concept or an amazing ad or something gets shared to one outlet that has millions of followers that's people think that's what viral is but it's not it actually is just being seeded appropriately yeah. so it's yeah. still the, the vision curve is still the same so there's yeah. fewer people that um see it that um it's a few of people that share it that see it yeah but definitely i think you know and that's definitely um you can see that you know in recent times that's been a trend where uh you know some uh, campaigns are almost like it's the idea of like a pseudo event you know where it's actually designed for the benefit of news media you know and it's like uh, everything becomes like PR the objective is to create enough of uh, a noise online that it gets reported in mainstream media and then that's how you get your your sort of reach you know and then it's sort of uh, and and you know that makes there. sense you know, we're researchers of attention, so we can see that attention to advertising in 2020 and beyond mm. is a lot worse than people think. So, yeah. you know, trying to gain attention through PR um, is just another way of, you know, trying to hit the eyeball lottery, I guess. Yeah. Okay, cool. Right, listen, uh, um, we're supposed to be doing this Desert Island Discs thing, and we've just gone oh. on like... 20, 20 minutes without a tune so <laughs> so we're gonna have your we're gonna have your first uh, your first pick and so um so the young karen uh running about are you from adelaide initially i or, am yeah, yes so i am running around adelaide uh, as a Durani. yeah <laughs> that's what they used to call them yeah all right so so um so your first pick is hungry like the wolf by duran duran go tell us a little story about that before we play it well, the story is my biggest sister was a true Durrani and I just followed her lead. So I pretended and I tried to pick my favourite. And so, but but even into my now, my 40s, I'm still obsessed by them. I was in Cannes a couple of years ago and yeah. Simon Le Bon was there and I thought I was 10. I was squealing. I was so excited. <laughs> I know. So it just takes me back to the 70s when yeah. life was fun and I would dance. And to this day, if something, if, if a Duran Duran song comes on, don't even i will dance right then and there okay well the um so the listeners when we play this they can just uh, picture you dancing around your office uh, this goes okay <laughs> Behind. 
the next thing I wanted to, to quiz you about, uh, and, and you sort of touch on this uh, in the middle of the book, is about uh, the sort of surveillance nature of, of digital uh, media and platforms and everything. I, I have a sort of, um, I'm a little bit skeptical about um, how effective or, uh, you know, the actual accumulation of massive amounts of personal data about people. What, what does, I, I'm not sure how that benefits advertisers, to be honest. Um, and uh, I've been looking into recently um, aspects of, of game theory Right, and uh, and looking at how trust is established in, in cooperation uh, of all types, right? And so we live in a world of imperfect information. And th this is what you can tell me if this is right or wrong. This is what I'd say to, to clients is that when, when you've got information asymmetry, so if the seller, for instance, knows more about the buyer than the buyer does about the product or the seller, that doesn't foster trust and so what sellers and this is where advertising has been very useful because it's uh, sellers can then signal their trustworthiness by advertising expenditure right and so so your average consumer doesn't know how much a full page press ad costs but they know it's kind of expensive and they don't know how much a programmatic banner that tracks you around the internet costs but they know it's pretty cheap right and so uh, you know, and this is a well-established sort of science is that, you know, uh, uh, and that, uh, you know, costly signaling. So you can infer quality by uh, the amount of money an advertiser laid down. And also a press ad doesn't track you. It doesn't require any information. So you can trust that a little bit more. But the, the moral panic over surveillance, I think, that, you know, there's an element of concern there but I think it's been overblown a little bit but what's your point of view on that oh my gosh there were so many things in there I'm <laughs> trying to think what I'm open <laughs> I think the first thing is what you said about buyers and sellers I think I think you're making an assumption that buyers know more than they do and I think the reality is they don't know what they don't know so I, I think this trust piece I don't disagree with you but what, what step back um, I don't know if you've listened or watched the the social dilemma recently but the interestingly when I wrote this book obviously that hadn't kind of hit the Netflix but the concept of surveillance capitalism is beyond the concept of hyperpersonalization so it's actually two very different things so hyperpersonalization is building co content to you know personalized content that kind of goes to a small group versus you know, um, mass personalization, if you like, to a larger group. But um, the concept of surveillance capitalism is, a, is, it really comes back down to this whole concept of filter bubbles. So I think you're kind of right, but I also don't think you really take into account the fact that the nature of the algorithmic editor is such that we're only exposed to things that the algorithm chooses for us to see so therefore our trust and our understanding of what we should and shouldn't trust is very much filtered so you know i i feel like there's two different things there i think what we believe is what we believe because of what we get 
shown. So there's this whole filter bubble piece. Yeah. And if you think about, if you think about, and in fact, in the last section of my book, I talk about how will brands grow in the future? Yeah. Because if you think about Amazon, Amazon's core business is to only give you products that they know within an inch of its probable life that you will buy. So it's not going to show you 10 similar products because there's a bunch of them that will never be bought. So I just feel like, I know this is kind of going off on a bit of a tangent, but the two things here are, I think the way our trust with brands or, and our knowledge of brands is being controlled by algorithms because they're interested in us going and clicking to buy and put it in the basket. But I think the concept of hyper-personalization, as I said, is, an, is another thing altogether. I mean, back to your point on reach, the problem with personalization is that you have a reach play issue yeah. um, and the cost to actually hyper-personalize to lots of people means that you have to pay for lots more creative. So there's questions around the efficiency and um, you know, the, the value of that relative to the price you pay. But I think that's two different things. Surveillance capitalism and personalization is two different things. Yeah. The, um, in terms of personalization, <clears throat> so, you know, the other argument is, you know, big, big sort of dumb advertising um, is kind of, uh, what's the word they use for it? Cultural imprinting or something. You know, there's a kind of comfort or a, a, a knowing that, that lots of other people are seeing this, but when you when something's very hyper personalized, you don't know whether you're the only one that's being being shown that, and there's a little sort of bit of. But you don't know that anyway. You don't know that anyway. So I think, I, I think that's the issue. That even if you don't think it's hyper personalized, I bet it is. So yeah. this is the problem that we live in: that these yeah. filter bubbles that are formed around you skew your look on life, right? Yeah. So. So you just don't know. Yeah. So. I kind of, yeah, the, the, the other thing, you know, it's kind of, because I come at it from the other angle as well, which is obviously during this lockdown, you know, we've all been stuck inside. So I've been watching a lot more TV than I would normally do and, and catch up TV. Uh, and some of the commercial, Australian commercial, uh, you know, uh, well, the channels that show ads and their catch up services. And, uh, and you get the same three ads in every break, you know, for hours and hours and hours. And I think, so you know hang on a minute where's all the clever programmatic uh, data-driven yeah. in that you know I mean, yeah look what we see particularly in the tv game is that the technology varies and it varies so so you if you do that in us mm. you know addressable tv is a lot more progressed so right. i don't disagree with you there but i mean yeah. that's that's a that's a specific platform technology issue not yeah. Not that you know they go well. We don't believe in it. It's just yeah. the technology isn't um, quite yeah. at the level, perhaps, as the US. Okay, right. Um, let's play the next song, which is the Doors. Okay, so you know I'm a bit of a nerd. If you didn't know that, and I've <laughs> never felt, I've never really felt cool. So I was, I was, I was one of those really annoying A students at school, and I just never really fit in. So every time I hear the Doors. And I've, I'll be really honest with you, I've never even smoked a joint in my whole life. But whenever I hear the doors, I always pretend that I've got, I'm really full and I've got some sort of special cigarette in my mouth. And 
it's just the weirdest thing because it just transports me to being someone cool. All right, cool. Well, I think, you know, in fairness, Jim Morrison probably consumed enough uh, substances <laughs> for all of us. So. <laughs> okay. you know the sort of the the middle part of the book which which you sort of build up to and then sort of build out of um is around it's about attention obviously the attention economy uh, and it's it's a kind of phrase that gets sort of bandied about i think a lot of people say it but they're not really sure what it means but but you've sort of quantified that uh to a degree and, and built out a, a model so without without sort of giving the game away uh, too much because obviously this is um because you want people to buy this <laughs> but um what what's the there's a sort of three steps in the uh, or three types of attention that you identify um and and have a and can measure so do you want to yeah look I, I think it's important to kind of step back because the attention economy the term is bandied around and i will tell you that we didn't you know in the last 10 years we didn't invent it i didn't invent it um but it was essentially a concept um, that so, so research has been done around the lack of attention and the implications to human beings for a very long time. So if you think about the attention uh, economy or, or um, lack of attention in motor vehicle uh, driving, so if you don't pay attention, there's accidents. If you're not paying attention to when you're if you were a, a radar person that's when it actually started i think it was in the world war that um you know they were looking at research about people not paying attention to the radar and what implications that might have to planes yeah. so this yeah. is not so it's about the deficiency of attention and what does that mean for the industry and that's kind of how it's kind of jumped into marketing and kind of saying you know we are in a space of undivided almost comatose busyness um, we, we're always undivided attention. We, we, we don't, we don't just, you know, pay significant sort of sustained attention to or undivided attention to ads at all. We, we kind of jump in and out and yeah. look around yeah. and, you know, do all this sort of stuff. So the concept of attention as an economy is one that sort of calls out the effectiveness of opportunity to see. So it sort of says to the industry, we know 
and you know it's not just my work but you know we know that not all opportunity is created equal for so many reasons and we know there's very little transparency around this truth and that comes back to your buyer seller thing so it's we live in a lemon market where the buyers of platforms really don't know what's going on in terms of um you know media ots mm. and, and we see our own data that proxy measures don't cut it so just because you know time in view is recorded we can see that on average about half the time someone is actually looking at an ad even though you've just paid for 25 seconds of time and we also see that cpms don't account for this performance difference so so attention has become a bit of a go-to in terms of understanding relative value um, and that's kind of the place we play in but your your other part was you know how do you what, what is your model let's just step back um, about four years so doing uh, cross-platform measurement i needed to sort of understand a way that i could look at human behavior because obviously i know that ots is not equal across all platforms so i needed a way to sort of understand what the viewer was doing across different platforms and account for the different different you know the different platform differences within that so we built this technology originally purely just from a research perspective which enabled someone to go to Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, BVOD, whichever platforms we were looking at in any country. And our code did a couple of things. So we have code that sits behind the platforms a bit like Moat. So code will sit behind sponsored ads. In some cases, we can take ads out and replace them. Um, and also, um, so it can tell, you know, how fast someone's scrolling. We can tell if someone's moved their phone in a horizontal view the sound on sound off but we also then take footage through the front facing camera and long story short we built that so that i could understand what someone has seen in terms of being served mm -hmm. what they've done on the screen how they've interacted with it but also this facial footage this then goes back to our gaze models which is what you were alluding to mm. and that translates to three types of attention which initially comes from um, academic literature actually, which is active attention, which is eyes on the ad itself, mm. passive attention, which is eyes on the screen, but it's not on the ad. So if you think about an Instagram feed, you're basically often looking at the comments and making rather than an ad itself, which might be sitting at the bottom of the screen. And then obviously non-attention. So mm. those are the three components. And what we've found over the years, we've really, really tightened up our models and our error is super tiny. So the level of granularity allows us to really understand, you know, what someone's looked at, you know, what are the things that stop or stop or don't foster attention. Um, and then, you know, we, we also do a virtual source. So we've been able to sort of triangulate it with choice. Yeah. Cause this is a, a little bit in the area that that we try and help clients with and this is because i'm more interested in what's actually going on inside the head of consumers and um what what i did in a the best way we could we're not 100 percent scientifically robust but I'd, I'd read a couple of studies and i thought i wonder if i can replicate these uh, in any way and so uh, and this is to do with sort of so there's an idea the idea of the mind being you know, because when we say like the uh, individual is paying attention, what does that, you know, who, who are we talking about? What, who is the, or what is the thing that's paying attention? And, and because the mind is kind of, is made up of lots of different modules or cognitive 
processes and each of them are are you know take turns or compete for control of the organism you know if you like so uh, and the, and this is around particular sort of motives or goals now this is similar to what the likes of people like phil barden uh, talk about in terms of goal-directed behavior but it's a little bit more uh sort of uh, fundamental than that and i I've, I've tried to replicate experiments where for instance if you if you show people you know we create two versions of an ad right one which is an appeal to sort of uh, social proof or safety in numbers right so you know x amount of people prefer blah and then you create another version which is an appeal to individual things so you know you will be smart if you do this depending on the environment that you show them and what mental processes might be active at the time you get different responses so when you show people appeals to safety in numbers in news media for instance where self-protection motives are kind of activated you know because most of the news is bad uh, and it's and it sort of you know invokes fear type responses they respond much better to safety in numbers type appeals rather than appeals to individualism but if you if you show them appeals to the individual in for instance romantic in a romantic movie uh, then sort of mating motives are active and so they respond better so the nature i guess the point is the nature of attention depends on what motives are already active in the uh yeah. in the receiver would you go along with that yeah, look, so there are, lot, again, lots of concepts in there. Firstly, <laughs> let me say this. What we, what we do is we, we do attention to advertising at scale. Mm. You're talking, and what we don't do is we don't understand cognitive processing. So, and that's, that needs to be defined. So we're very open about that. We, you know, we'll do three, last, last collection, we did three countries at once and we did thousands and thousands of people tens of thousands of views what we're interested in is whether someone looked at it at all because that in itself is a validated human view so we're talking about the advertising game right or, or the media media impression game what we don't do with this data is pretend to understand how someone thinks now that's the sort of research that you would do with 15 people because it costs you a fortune to put them under a machine and in a lab. So that is not scalable. However, there's plenty of work that talks about the concept of triggers. So you are hundred percent right. There are different triggers and depending on um, the, the human that's seeing it has, has um, different impacts, right? So I will take it back to why we do what we do, but um, there are two types of triggers top down, and bottom up and one is about unexpectedness and the other is about goal orientated and personal relevance so you were a hundred percent right and that's in the literature we have a phd student who works with us in the attention space at the moment so he has 400 papers on this if you ever want them okay. but so but 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 because we know that this is equally why it's really important that our technology can do what it does so when we're looking at cross-platform effectiveness it's really important that we understand those things. Hence, we actually remove the ads that are in the native play and replace them, for example, with one Calvin Klein ad that's across all platforms. So the creative plays a big role 
in the processing of that message or the eventual behavioral outcome, right? And we know that. So when we have done our cross-platform, our cross-platform media stuff, and this is why I talk about being fair to all the platforms. So if we if we went, let's just say for argument's sake, we went to a social and the ads that that person was served happened to be pretty poor quality because there were all small businesses that advertised that day. Yet you put another group on TV and it, the big guns are out, the big Coke ads and the big emotional you know, ads are out. Yeah. Then what's going to happen is the behavioral outcome will be skewed to TV. And that's not fair because it, to your point, the big emotional, you know, relevance pieces that are on TV, it's the creative that's that's skewing that. So, so the way that we've done our research today is held the creative constant across all platforms. And that's that's the beauty and the the value of our technology as a research right. tool. And then from there, we can deep dive and see some of the things that you speak about. So certainly you know, branding plays a big role. Um, you know, emotions play a role. We see sound as well, but yeah. the creative triggers that sit behind that, we can see that they do vary between different people. Yeah. Um, so I think you're right, but I, we account for that. But, but bearing in mind, my goal is to be able to use human attention as a, as a quality layer in media planning. You can't do that with 15 people sitting in a, you know, with heart rate monitors, you can't generalize that. So I I don't disagree with you, but um, to where we play is, because the biggest problem we see is that, you know, an OTS is not an OTS. It's, it's, it's often less than a half of the time people are even seeing it or looking at it personally. So that's the place we play. Not in not in understanding the brain. Humans are pretty complex. I'm not sure I want to be a researcher of that. <laughs> oh, okay. Okay. Well, to, um, that's going to that sort of leads us into nicely into because you just sort of touched on in there and sort of aspects of sort of brand prominence and um, and whether all screens are equal or platforms are equal. But but because we we're just talking about emotions there for a minute, it's probably a good cue for a love song. So uh, I'm just trying to imagine imagine you with sort of black spiky Robert Smith hair and, and sort of you know running makeup and stuff. Was that did you have that look at all? No, I was remember <laughs> I told you I was the geek. All oh, right. So I wished I had that, but no, that was. But no, I just love this song because um, you know I actually I think I'm a I think I'm a closet rock chick. And I'm not a pop love song kind of girl. So yeah. this one for me, I just find it really emotional and really, you know, heartfelt. Okay. Well, Cure, massively underrated, in my opinion. Oh, thank one, you. One of the Must be the same girls. age. <laughs> <laughs>
I've seen you present a couple of times on uh, on this sort of aspect of the research about uh, size of screen uh, and brand prominence and and whether you know the and sort of the impact of effectiveness on whether there's other you know how much uh, coverage 100% coverage obviously is more uh, optimal than sharing the screen with other content. Do you want to just sort of summarize uh, that bit because this is um, this is something you've spoken about extensively. Yeah, I have. I mean, originally when we were doing all these research pieces, part of the part of the report is to understand the relationship between attention and different variables. So we yeah. sort of started on this path, like what what could, and it's funny because I, I feel like I'm pretty common sense kind of chick. So I kind of go, well, if you can't, if only half of the ad is on screen, I'm wondering whether that might make a difference. Yeah, yeah. probably does. Um, so we kind of picked the visual, particularly given the MRC standards, we picked sort of the visibility piece um, as the core stuff. So that's time on screen, pixels, but we also add coverage. So coverage for those who are listening is different to pixels. So pixels is the proportion of the ad that's on screen, yeah. whereas we call coverage um, the proportion of the screen that the ad covers. So yeah. they don't use that in the MRC standard, but it's actually quite important because one, one kind of describes clutter and one describes how the ad has loaded on the screen. So, um, but what we do see is that without a doubt, there are relationships between the amount of attention paid and those three things. So time on screen, pixels and coverage. Yeah. But then we also see that for a whole lot of other variables as well, which is what I said. So sound, we're seeing that. Um, these are the key ones. And then the creative ones that sit below that. So, but what we have kind of come to terms with is because so at the end of the day, if the ad is full screen <laughs> and your, your example of cinema is a classic because yeah. it's a hundred percent on screen, it's a hundred percent coverage, it's 100% sound and you can't get out. So yeah. that is by, by far the most premium viewing experience, yeah. albeit the reach component isn't, yeah. you know, you have to reconcile that, but yeah. that's not reality in social, right? So yeah. So I think um, what we do is we've seen relationships between attention and all these variables, but the moreover that we do, the more we see that actually attention transcends that. So, so we sort of say now that, you know, there's so many different people and to your point, every human is different, but attention generally inherently reflects all those differences across platforms. So if you have, a platform that has very few active attentive seconds, then you will see that it's because that platform also has low coverage, low pixels. Um, most of the time sound is off, if not off yeah. very low, that sort of stuff. So that's why we've chosen attention as a measure to move forward with as a, as a, a metric, if you like. Yeah. I mean, that's definitely not, not your ability, for example. Yeah. Well, because, you know, there was some controversy last year or maybe the year before about uh, well without naming names but certain uh, social media platforms how you know in their reporting you know what they classified as a view you know was probably less than what 
Yeah, they, they've improved that obviously since then. But I mean, back to your buyer, seller, lemon market, peach mm. market, that doesn't help trust. Mm. Um, and, and I think that, that the MRC, you know, they've become, they've all become um, MRC um, members since then and improved um, the way that uh, an impression is sold. But at the same time, we still see in our own data that in an, in an impression that you would pay full tote CPM for, the larger majority of it is no one's paying attention or and they're reading their feed they're not looking at the ads so yeah. that's kind of the extra layer that we're that doesn't mean what they're doing is unethical it's not because that's traditional ots but we're yeah. trying to say we you know there's technology now that can kind of tighten that performance difference yeah. would, would you um do you still stand by the sort of point of view of you know, uh, introducing the brand early and often and sort of having as many, uh, you know, brand cues throughout, you, you, you would stand by that. Yeah, I mean, that's that's that seminal work of yeah. Jenny Romaniel from the Institute. And, you know, we see that. In, I mean, and the, the reason why that is, um, is because the nature of attention is such that the front end is paid more attention and then people scroll yeah. away. So, yeah. you know, you do miss the opportunity if you, you know, decide to put your brand in frame number five. Um, but there's there's other things we can see because we, we do a sub second, so it's five frames per second um, attention measure. What we can see as well is when, even if it's further down in the ad, if you've got a, a creative piece that renders high emotion or shock or something mm. like that. Often people fail to brand. Um, and those are the attention moments that you want to make sure are distinctive to you. Yeah. So, you know, some of the work, I mean, I'm, we're not as much in the creative space as the Institute are, but we kind of often say, you know, if you don't align attention peaks with branding, then, you know, obviously it, could yeah. be misattributed to the bigger competitors. So that's a yeah. really important. Point. Yeah, quality yeah. branding is well and truly underrated. That's for yeah. sure. I'm still to this day, you know, I think even, you know, you think we all sort of intuitively or, or, you know, have learned this now, but so much uh, content that you see that's just not the branding, you know, it could be the greatest, most creative thing, really exciting, do all those, you know, uh, have those peaks of emotional intensity and everything and that but but you don't know what brand it's from i, w I once had a, a client who um and this was you know it wasn't a small brand right it's a big national brand and they came to us uh with some some films that they'd made were uh, talking to small business people blah 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 which they wanted sort of distributed in the most appropriate way and i looked at it and i said to them where's the actual branding on this because there was none and they said to us, oh, well, we didn't want to put any branding in because if people think it comes from, you know, brand X, they won't watch it. And I said, well, what's the, what's the point of even doing it? Then they look at me sort of blankly. <laughs> um, funnily enough, Jenny, Rom and I, um, for the first book, did a piece of work. So there's a chapter in my first book on that. Mm. And that's actually a complete myth yeah. that... Um, people switch out with overt branding. That's a complete myth. Yeah. Um, but what I was going to say was your example, we, we literally finished collection in Germany um, earlier this year before COVID. Goodness. And um, we see that. So there's a piece of creative. I won't say who the brands are, but if you think of the top five 
running shoemakers, you can probably think about them, yeah. right? And this was not the leader in the pack. This was okay. a second or third brand. And they were the ad, that was the ad that we were focusing on. And, but it was amazing. The ad was beautiful, the people running around and, you know, the shoe was just gorgeous. But, and there was high emotion. So there was about, you know, exhilaration and winning the race and all that yeah. sort of stuff. But everyone, we went, oh my God, look, this brand has really bombed out across all platforms, what's happened. And sure enough, when we went back to the choice, because we can see who chooses what off the store shelf, um, they all chose number one. And it was a classic because it had very little branding in it at mm. all. They assumed that the shoe stood out to be different and it wasn't. Yeah. I mean, at the end, most of them are black and white. Yeah. <laughs> you know? But well, that's the thing. So, you know, the first thing it does is sort of invokes the category. And then as soon as you, you know, the category comes to mind, then it's the, it will be the leading brands that, that come to mind right. as well. So, that's so you kind of, yeah. yeah yeah all right one more little topic that we'll cover after your penultimate tune which is desiree so this song is about strength and you know i you know i don't don't get the violins out but you know when yeah. when you're in a fairly high profile role or trying to forge truth um it can be rough and you right. know there's trolls and you know, I've had my fair share of people that have tried to push me down. You know, Australia of all places is very um, tall poppy. Yeah. Um, and this song represents, you know, just getting back in there and you've got to be stronger and you've just got to fight back and you just got to stick to it and stick to your guns. So this one, albeit it's an older song, to this day, I love this song. Yeah, no, it's a fantastic tune. I was looking, because I want, you know, when you sent me your list beforehand, I was like, oh, I totally forgot about that. And I, and I don't... Yeah, and I don't know what happened to to her. She kind of about yeah. two thousand and two or something just completely disappeared. And then I noticed she actually put out a new album last year.
finish off and then you've got you've got one more song which which i'm gonna save to the end and that can just play us out because it's a good sort of last tune of the night uh, if you like or the morning but um at the at the end of the book you speculate that um you know what what we've come to sort of understand as established laws of brand growth that's uh you know have uh, most people will be aware of that now it's sort of you know because that kind of thinking has become more popular in recent years most people are aware of it but you kind of speculate that you know i guess as in uh, as in everything you know uh, uh, laws or um things can change evolve in response to environmental pressures and definitely in terms of media we are subject to a lot of environmental pressures where as we described before things like cinema and tv that in theory uh, you know would be most effective if only consumers were watching them but but now we're dealing with a much uh, with a much more complicated and in many respects lower quality media environment will brands develop and grow and and thrive in the same way that they've done over the next 10 years is that gonna is that gonna change and i guess who who you know does this benefit smaller niche brands are we going to have a much more fragmented you know in in certain categories where there's less fewer overall leaders and much more distribution but you kind of speculate on that so let me start by saying in the front end of the book we talk about vitruvius and the laws of architecture and you know i know this is random but he is kind of the father of how buildings will stand the test of time between you know engineering and design and so my husband happens to be an architect so that's how i actually know about that um but it's interesting because he was saying that when i was writing this book he was saying that you know to this day i mean these i have to go back to the book but i think they were even written in the 1200s but these volumes are still to this day taught at the university because there are some things that stand the test of time Mm. but what has changed is the materials and i think what's important for listeners is to understand is that you know there will always be some rules that do hold and i think that's important but as the delivery of media changes significant i mean you just said before about you know algorithms and surveillance i mean you can't beat the supercomputers right so you know we we've moved past the 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 spray and pray of tv in the 70s and now we sit where you can you know be targeted with an inch of your life so while the way that you might have repertoires and things like that might stay and hold i truly believe that things are changing so it's a bit of both but to your point how will brands grow um that's a controversial question obviously um but but uh, it's interesting because in the last section of the book um you know I kind of talk about, I actually genuinely think that in the next 10 years that things will change because if you think about the transformation um, and the growth of the e-commerce giants that, which I sort of alluded to before, the nature of the repertoires that we're even exposed to are different. Like, you know, will we go to the store? Probably not. We'll probably go back to the same brands and those will be maybe three brands. Maybe the repertoire size will change. Mm. I just think it's important to be 
really open to the fact that you know we should reconsider the laws of brand growth mm. knowing that patents have held for years and years and years but never before have we been in such a transformation around ad tech and and mm. you know media or e-commerce aggregators and things like that so yeah i think the parameters will change um but how that is i don't know but it's interesting because i was talking to someone the other day about this and I think COVID because I think in the book I talk about a 10-year or 20-year window yeah. so within 10 years here it is within 10 years we will be forced to reconsider the laws of brand growth within 20 years they'll be different um, the parameters around penetration and loyalty might stand but they'll change because of the filter bubbles that we have been exposed to yeah. but I was talking to someone the other day and I think that COVID has accelerated that so I might, my timing, my, my thinking might be right, but my timing might change. Yeah. So yeah, the questions I don't know, are will that adjust the whole concept of the need for driving mental availability mm. and what does that mean? Do we even need that anymore? Do we need to be brand? I mean, there was one uh, contributor to the book that talked about the fact that, you know, brands will need to be less prominent as trusted brands and it will be more of a function of does it fill the void how it feeds me yeah. um so it's, yeah i don't know it's anyone's guess i guess you know i mean to that point you know you pick something like amazon for instance where you know it's kind of the law you know the big brands dominating law still holds but but it's kind of a different type of brand because if amazon can can provide everything from biscuits to lawnmowers you know they they kind of spread across all different categories so you get these kind of like uber brands that, that um, I, I used to sometimes give an example this is probably a bad example now because uh because their airline business is you know collapsed but yes, Vir <laughs> virgin you know because you would say to people, so virgin like you know one, one of the most well-known brands in the world and i would say to people what do they make and it's well they make credit cards and they make airlines and they make cola and they you know and they can go into any category um, because the brand is so strong, you know, and Amazon's a bit like that as well, you know, so it's, it's harder to pin, you know, it may be that it'll be harder to pin down brands into a specific category, but there will be these kind of colossal brands that dominate, uh, you know, a number of categories, you know, so it's kind of the yeah. law, the law still holds, but it's just slightly yeah. different. I think what will happen is there'll be fewer in the category, that's mm. what I think happen mm. because the smaller ones won't survive or get any light from the algorithms you know yeah. so it'll be more these big brands that probably dominate as you say but yeah. you know i think what i try and say in this piece is you know what i feel like we as an industry need to be open-minded um and sort of kind of know but that's what research does so yeah. new research to new platforms with new data would you know definitely is needed but i, I just think be open-minded because um you know, we don't build bridges like we did in the first century. We build them yeah. with different materials. <laughs> Absolutely. I think, and, and that's the thing, it's kind of, um, you know, being sort of stuck in the middle, I guess, is is a difficult place to be because the, we're surrounded by sort of zealots on both sides, you know, where there's kind of like people who just constantly decry anything to do with digital advertising as being, you know, as being the enemy. And then there's other people that are stuck in, no, sorry, they're on one side. And then there's the others who are, who, you know, have anything to do with brand building or what we would term traditional is uh, is sort of outmoded, you know. But the truth is sort of somewhere in the middle, you know, and, and, and it's going to be a new way of figuring out 
Okay, well, I, I know you're very busy, so uh, thank you very much for taking the time out uh, to chat. It I'll was so much fun, thank you. Thank you, and I'll reiterate uh, to to those listening that I think, um, yeah, Attention Economy is definitely one of those uh, um, books that you should have kind of in your desk drawer for constant uh, reference. And so, um, so thank you very much, and you're going to play us out uh, with your with your final tune, so we're going to go out on a uh, on an upbeat uh, sort of uh, note. No, so the last song for me. I mean, you're all going to think I'm a bit crazy, but um, I, if you haven't worked it out, I, there's a dancing theme throughout. So, yeah. so I don't get out a lot, but when I do, I like a good dance. And you know, disco for me and Kylie Minogue is the penultimate. So I like to put this on in my car and uh, have a bit of. A Thank you.